We continue with the opinion of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in Blasting Game v. Trump. Picking up on page 34 with part 2, section B1C. C. Under Nixon and Clinton, then, the task is to distinguish between official acts and private acts. In the context of the cases before us, that means determining whether President Trump acted as an office holder or office seeker when he engaged in the activity alleged in the complaints. In that regard, we recognize that there is not always a clear line between the president's personal and official affairs. In particular, the line between president and candidate will not always be clear. But in some situations, there will be little doubt, and not just when the president himself allows that he acts in his personal capacity as a candidate for re-election. When a sitting president solicits donations at a fundraiser for his re-election campaign, fires a campaign pollster or hires a new one, or gives a speech at a party convention accepting the party's nomination, it is straightforward to conclude that he acts in an unofficial capacity as presidential candidate rather than an official capacity as incumbent president. Even if other contexts doubtless present closer calls, there is ultimately no avoiding the essential understanding that a president's immunity from damages liability applies only to acts within the outer perimeter of his official responsibility, and hence does not extend beyond the scope of any action taken in an official capacity. The potential difficulty of meeting out that distinction in some situations, then, cannot justify simply giving up on the enterprise altogether. And President Trump himself allows that courts can, in fact, tell the difference between official and unofficial conduct. The inquiry, though, should be fashioned and carried out with appropriate sensitivity to the important interests at stake. In that connection, the Supreme Court has emphasized the need to avoid highly intrusive inquiries into the president's motives. An assessment of whether the president is engaged in official functions or unofficial re-election campaign activity, correspondingly, does not turn on whether the activity was subjectively undertaken in some measure to enhance the president's re-election prospects or profile. The inquiry instead is an objective one, grounded in a context-specific assessment of the nature of the function performed. We emphasize context because only by looking to context can the relevant nature of an action be understood. The same essential message or act may be either official or unofficial depending on the circumstances in which it is delivered or performed. The President's delivery of the State of the Union Address to Congress and the public, for instance, is an official act. That remains so regardless of whether he may draw themes and make points with an eye on maintaining his public standing in an election year, or whether priorities given primacy in this speech may echo ones emphasized on the campaign trail. 
Conversely, a speech at a campaign rally fully funded by a president's campaign committee might relate some of the same messages as the State of the Union address, but it is an unofficial event by nature. Similarly, the president can remove the Secretary of State and he can remove his campaign manager. The former is an official exercise of the executive power, but the latter is no such thing. Understanding the context, then, will often be essential to identifying the capacity in which a president acts. That context may be substantially informed by the way in which the president and the executive branch themselves treat the activity in question. If it is clothed in the trappings of an official function based on objective indicia, it more likely constitutes an official act for immunity purposes than if it bears the hallmarks of re-election campaign activity. So, if an activity is organized and promoted by official White House channels and government officials and funded with public resources, it is more likely an official presidential undertaking than if it is organized, promoted, and funded by campaign channels, personnel, and resources. Those considerations may not always point in the same direction, or even be known, but they can be illuminating when brought to light. The grant of immunity aims to free the president from an inclination that may otherwise exist to discharge his official functions in an unduly cautious manner. Yet if the president's and executive branch's own treatment of the matter exhibits that he views himself to be engaged in private activity as a candidate, there is no cognizable public interest in assuring he can carry out that quintessentially unofficial function with boldness. When an appropriately objective, context-specific assessment yields no sufficiently clear answer in either direction, the president, in our view, should be afforded immunity. The special nature of the president's constitutional office and functions prompted the Nixon court to extend immunity to the outer perimeter of his official responsibility. And subsequent decisions have construed statutes not to constrain presidential action absent clear indication of Congress's intent to do so. The same considerations counsel in favor of construing the president's actions to involve official functions so long as they can reasonably be understood as such. Conversely, though, when a president's actions viewed objectively and in context may reasonably be understood only as re-election campaign activity, a court not only may, but must, deny immunity. By doing so, the court acts not in derogation of the separation of powers, but to maintain their proper balance. We have no occasion to apply that framework in this appeal, because, as explained, President Trump makes no argument at this stage that his actions, as alleged in the complaints, were not re-election campaign activity. He will have every opportunity to make such an argument in the proceedings to come in the district court. 
but the inquiry we have outlined is consistent with his submission that the analysis should turn on the function being performed and not the politics or policy being advanced or the words being used. And the inquiry does not consist of trying to identify speech that would benefit a president politically. That is not to say that the content of a speech will invariably be entirely off-limits. In certain circumstances, for instance, it could serve to confirm what an objective assessment of the context makes evident. Indeed, even deciding whether speech is of public or private concern under President Trump's proposed approach would require us to examine the content, form, and context of that speech. But the crux of the inquiry we have described concerns the context in which the president speaks, not what precisely he says or whether it might advance his re-election prospects. By way of illustration, consider President Trump's speech at the Salute to America event on the National Mall on July 4, 2019. By the time of that address, President Trump had formally announced his candidacy for re-election. And his address drew criticism in many quarters as amounting to a taxpayer-funded campaign rally in service of his re-election effort. But several objective considerations strongly suggest that the speech was and was treated by the president and executive branch as part of an official event, regardless of whether what was said or how it was conceived might have borne some subjective connection to enhancing President Trump's re-election prospects. For instance, the Salute to America rally was publicly funded, including through National Park Service and Department of Defense resources. In addition, the government promoted the event, and its primary organizers were government officials from the White House and the Department of the Interior. The National Park Service, for example, presented the event and invited the public to attend. Accordingly, the White House treated President Trump's speech as official presidential remarks on its official website, and while President Trump was in office, dedicated a webpage to the annual Salute to America event. The White House also promoted the event on its official Twitter account. And finally, a number of government officials attended the event, some of whom could have violated federal law by attending if it were a campaign event. We have no need here to definitively decide whether President Trump's remarks at the Salute to America event would qualify as official presidential action for purposes of presidential immunity. Additional considerations might affect the assessment in some fashion. As one example, if the White House's official Twitter feed regularly promoted quintessential campaign events, its promotion of the Salute to America rally may not itself shed material light on the event's official or unofficial character in the eyes of the executive branch. But under the inquiry we have outlined, President Trump's speech at the event would be treated as official action if it could reasonably be understood in that way. Whether his remarks addressed matters of public concern would not, 
and we believe should not, decide the issue. 2. We turn next to President Trump's alternative argument that he is entitled to official act immunity because he took the actions alleged in the complaints in an exercise of his Article II duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. President Trump's contention in that regard, however, does not demonstrate that he was acting in his official capacity so much as presume it. His argument presents no ground for affording him immunity that is independent of his ability to show that he engaged in the relevant actions in his official capacity as president rather than in his private capacity as a presidential candidate. The duty and authority to ensure the faithful execution of the laws, as with all of the executive power, is vested in the president solely in his official capacity. After all, the president assumes his take-care clause responsibilities and other executive duties only upon taking the constitutional oath of office, in which he must solemnly swear or affirm that he will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Nothing in Article II contemplates the President's exercise of the powers of the Presidency when acting in a private, i.e. non-presidential, capacity. Rather, President Trump's assertion that he exercised his authority under the Take Care Clause, at least without more, assumes the answer to the question whether he acted in an official capacity as officeholder or a private capacity as office seeker. If he acted in the latter capacity, he cannot have been exercising the duties of the very office he was seeking to attain. Any more than could his challengers when taking the same kinds of actions in seeking to attain the same office. It is not that President Trump could not establish his entitlement to immunity by demonstrating that he acted pursuant to the Take Care Clause. It is that he has not done so. He asserts that he was attempting to ensure faithful execution of the laws, in particular the Electoral Count Act, but he has not explained why his actions should count as official other than to say that they fit within the ambit of his take-care clause duties. They might, or they might not, depending on the context in which he acted. The President could exhort Congress to do its duty under the Electoral Count Act in a campaign ad, or he could do the same in the State of the Union address. Even assuming, without deciding, that the latter would be action taken in furtherance of the President's take-care clause duties, the former would not be, and indeed could not be, given that, as explained, the take-care clause presupposes official rather than private action. President Trump, though, has made no argument as to why his actions alleged here should be treated more like the State of the Union than the campaign ad. His invocation of the Take Care Clause thus ultimately does not add anything to his claim of immunity in the circumstances of the cases before us.
We've come to the end of part three of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off, and next episode will be the final in this opinion. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.